morning. <laughs> Merry Christmas. I, I, I was given a Christmas present yesterday morning when I woke up. I've always wanted to sound like Barry White and Steve Brown, and uh, it's finally happened. Uh, a, a, few, a few of you have already been surprised by me not shaking your hand but giving you a fist bump, but now you know why. I don't want to give you my... my Christmas present. So I was hoping I could get through this one without, I'm going to have to again in the first service. So, oh, I did this before. It's Christmas season and it's a time for colds and flus. And I don't know what you use, but I use Ricola. Um, <laughs> somebody, if somebody could contact Ricola to see if they would like to pay advertising dollars. I mean, I'd even wear it right here if uh, the price was right. <clears throat> okay, let's try this again. Merry Christmas. Yes. Have you guys got your Christmas shopping done yet? It's the time for shopping. I don't know if you're aware of that. I mean, we are fiendish here in America shopping. The National Retail Association estimates that in 2018, we're going to spend about $720 billion on our Christmas shopping. That in, that's decorations and gifts. That does not count food, beverages, and cars. You add that stuff in, it goes up another, another uh, $100 billion almost. Uh, on Thanksgiving weekend, 165 million people went shopping. We take our shopping seriously here. In fact, one of our staff, the day before Thanksgiving, was in a home store here in town and got this nativity scene. It's an, uh, an inflatable nativity scene, no less. Now, she had seen it a couple of weeks before in the store, and she'd been in a hurry and said, man, I want to get one of those. And uh, the kids would love it. It'd be a fun thing for us to do. It'd be real easy. So, but she'd kind of forgotten about it. The day before Thanksgiving, she was walking through the store on her way to checkout. Her cart's already full. The kids are with her. She sees this on top of some other boxes that were here, had Christmas trees. And she said, oh my gosh, they only have one left. She was in a hurry, it's about to close, I need to get home, get ready for Thanksgiving. So she grabbed it, put it in her cart, went up, checked out, went home, unloaded everything, put this in the garage. And then later that weekend, they were decorating for Christmas. And her husband came in the house and said, did, did, did you already put up the inflatable nativity scene? She said, no, that's your job. I mean, I, I just get the stuff. And he said, well, there's nothing in the box. And she went out and sure enough, she had purchased, spent $100 on an empty box. It was the box that the display had come in and it was the only one left. And she had not noticed that it was light. The clerk did not notice that it was really light. Her husband didn't notice it was really light until it was too late. I don't know what they've worked out with the home store, but bottom line, that happens. But it happens in a much more significant and deep way. We shop like crazy in our country, 
But is what we are looking for really going to be found in a box in a shopping mall? So often we're thinking what we need is something that somebody else can buy for us. And actually what we ultimately need is very expensive, but it's free. It's in the context of the gospel. That's why we're calling this series Christmas Shopping, Looking for Life. Because what we're ultimately looking for is something that can't be found in a shopping mall. And when I say life, I'm not just referring to heart-beating, lung-breathing life. I'm talking about the life of the gospel. It's, it's what's at the epicenter of our new vision statement here at Northland to engage people. We're all about engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. It's a restorative dance that we're invited into. But it's not a happy, clappy dance. It's something that engages with the full orb and, 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 and arena and sphere of our journey and all that we grapple with. It goes deep. The gospel's reach is far more than something that affects our Sunday mornings if we actually engage with it. When we were in our series in the fall and being fully alive, and we're going to come back to that, by the way, in 2019, we talked about longings. You guys remember that? Talk to... That a, you know, a superficial engagement with my longings will lead me to a superficial engagement with the gospel. So go deep with the longings. What are the longings we're talking about? The, the list is long, but here are a few of them. Significance, our, our, our yearning for intimacy and love and connection and wholeness and meaning and purpose and acceptance and shalom and truth and beauty, goodness, story, destiny, freedom, belonging, resolution. The list goes on and on. None of those longings will be found in any box you're going to get at a shopping mall. So we're going to spend time Throughout Advent, which is throughout this Christmas season, all four weekends, looking at this whole notion of, yes, Christmas shopping, but let's shop for the real thing and realize we can't bring money, but just an open heart. And we can come with receptive, open hands to say, Jesus, what did you come to give us? To guide us on this journey, we're going to spend our time in Isaiah. And one particular passage in Isaiah, and then looking at how other passages in Scripture relate to it. But by way of introduction to it, if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 4. Jesus was about 28 years old. He was a young rabbi in Galilee, and what you and I know is Israel, the Holy Land. He'd gone away for 40 days in the desert of fasting and prayer. He hadn't yet launched his public ministry, but he came back and did just that. One of the first things that he did, it was on a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. He went to the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth, and he was asked to read the scripture. Now, it wasn't one of these, hey, what's your favorite? What's your favorite scripture? It was part of the liturgy. It was assigned to him. And obviously the scriptures to them were just the Old Testament. And the passage that he read and was appointed to read was Isaiah chapter 61. And you talk about a powerful non-coincidence. That's what it was. So if you've got your Bible, read along with me. If you don't have your Bible, you can look at the screens. Or if you don't own a Bible, pick one up as a gift of ours at the welcome desk. 
Luke 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. Now, Luke gives a summary of what he read. Let's go to what he actually read in Isaiah 61. So if you've got your Bible, put your hand there in Luke 4 and turn to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oils of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Now go back to verse 20 of Luke 4. Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Are you kidding me? Here's why that was so significant. God created, we rebelled. We said, God, we don't need you to be a normal, fulfilled human being. And so we came up with our own means to do that, which was not his path of life, but our path of rebellion that turned out to be a path of death. And he immediately, instead of destroying creation, set out to redeem it, to glorify himself even more by recreating what had become broken. The story of that is in Genesis, and the promise of this Redeemer begins in Genesis, and throughout redemptive history in the Old Testament, we see prophecies and pictures and illustrations and hints of the redemption that's coming through and His establishment of a new people, people of His own possession. But one of the prophecies, there are hundreds of prophecies regarding Christ's first advent, His first coming. One of the significant ones is Isaiah, a number of times in Isaiah. It's written 700 years before Jesus came. We see these prophecies. Now in Isaiah 60, what we know is 60, they didn't number them back then, but we'll number them. In Isaiah 60, Dr. E.J. Young, a brilliant theologian, biblical scholar, has written one of the seminal works on Isaiah, three volumes that's just rich. But he, uh, Dr. Young says, Isaiah 60 is a promise of the hope that the people of God can have. It says in Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. This is the hope of Messiah coming. 
He says, see, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the people, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. In other words, the significance of the Messiah coming is that you will be able to start living again, living to the glory of God, living fueled with the glory of God. Dr. Young says that in Isaiah 60, the promise of the blessing coming to God's people is made. But in Isaiah 61, the one who will deliver that promise, the one that will bring it, the one that will make it happen, the Messiah is talked about. It's Isaiah 61 that Jesus was reading. The sovereign Lord has anointed me. When Jesus rolled up that scroll, he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, at first they were saying, oh, isn't that great, Jesus? He's the good old hometown boys. And then all of a sudden it started dawning on them what he was saying. And as his sermon continued, they realized this guy's committing blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be Messiah, which is why in Luke 4, they, a mob uh, rose up and led him to the edge of town to seek to stone him. And Jesus slipped away, we're told. The reason they were so upset is because Jesus was claiming to be the Redeemer, the Restorer, the Messiah, who was saying, the time is now, it's come. He came with an agenda, and it was not to start a holiday. It was not to give us something to do on a weekend, Sunday morning or Saturday morning. It was not to make us religious. It was to take dead men and women and make them alive. Men and women who lived according to their own devices to once again live in the fulfillment of the glory of God. And he came to accomplish something. And Isaiah 61 describes that agenda. We're going to go through it during this month. Let's go back to verse 1 and focus on the phrase that we're going to look at this morning. Isaiah 61 verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's not just fiscally poor. That's poor in spirit, bankrupt when it comes to being equipped to live in the way that I'm designed to live. And here's the phrase we're going to camp on. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To bind up hearts that are broken. That's his agenda. In your life, that's his agenda in mine. Now, when you see the heart, you need to understand it is an enormous theme throughout Scripture. Most of us are illiterate when it comes to the heart. Most of us are either mind people or hands people. We're either doers or thinkers. Um, The feelers are over to the side, and a lot of people think that's what the heart is. It's a feeling thing. Now, the heart is seeing my mind and my, my, my feelings and my will all together. To be engaged on a heart level is to be thinking deeply is to be feeling authentically, is to be acting intentionally. When an athlete is play, plays with heart, you're not just saying that they've got emotion in it. They're very, they, 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 their mind understands the game very well. Their skill level is above all, and they play with passion. When a human being is living with a, with a heart that's engaged, it's part of being fully alive, by the way. They're thinking deeply, they're acting intentionally, they're feeling authentically, all underneath the Lordship of Jesus. There are over 700 references to the heart in Scripture. 
The heart is the target of the gospel. It's not my Sunday morning schedule that's the target of the gospel, my heart. Oswald Chambers says, if you want to know what the Bible means by heart, you could probably summarize it with one word, and the word is me. My heart is me. It's the sum total of who I am. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, above all else. You know what that means? It means above all else. Guard your heart. Why? Because it's the wellspring of life. It's the epicenter of who I am. The, the, the heart is what's targeted by the gospel. Passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. It's reminiscent of like Romans 10. It says, it's with your heart that you believe. Intellectually, volitionally, emotionally. You engage with the gospel fully. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18, Paul said, here's the deal with fallen humanity. We're darkened. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. And again, we're not just referring to heart beating, lung breathing, but capital L living, the life of God the life that we were originally intended for. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So this whole notion of engaging with the life of God has a lot to do with the heart, and I've got a problem. My heart, Jesus says, is, is broken. Scriptures refer to us as jars of clay, clay pots. Why? Well, part of it is because they're just beautifully fashioned. If you've ever watched a potter work, in fact, this summer we actually had a potter in our, a summer series that we're doing on Cultivate and watched an actual potter form and see the beauty and the intentionality that goes into this. This is you and me. We're clay pots because we're formed by the potter. We're also referred to as clay pots because of how vulnerable we are. And if you've lived in a fallen world long enough, you know what that's like. It can come with a phone call from a spouse or a spouse's attorney, a doctor's office, a son or daughter, a financial counselor, a boss, a coworker. We experience shattering in all arenas of our lives, financially, emotionally, relationally, medically. We are vulnerable people. And Jesus says, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. Some of you have experienced this, and we all know that it's not just a one-time thing. It happens. We're born broken in a sense, but then we try to get it together, and a little bit more breaks. And for some of you, 
You've been dreading December because of something that's happened. And you're, you're seated amongst the shards and you're thinking, I do not want to celebrate Christmas this year. And the, the happy tunes and the tinsel and the Christmas cookies and all seem so incongruous to what you're dealing with. Maybe it's not having somebody that you care deeply about, a bride that you just lost. And this is going to be the first Christmas to go through without her, or a son or a daughter, or maybe a job, or maybe there is no job. And we think, I can't celebrate Christmas in this. Here's the deal. This is the best place to celebrate Christmas. This is why he came. But I've got to grapple with that. I've got to grapple with the gospel at deep levels. So what do I do? What are our options when we're standing amongst the shards of a shattered heart? There are two options, basically. There are other categories underneath, but really mainly two. The first option is resignation. Resignation shows up in a lot of different ways in our lives. For some of us, it becomes cynicism. For others of us, it's passivity. For others of us, it's diving headfirst into a hobby or an addiction. But bottom line, it's resignation from the dance. It's kind of going over to the side of this ballroom floor of my journey and saying, I'll sit out the next song. And then that one song becomes two and two becomes four and four becomes the, the rest of my life maybe. Job puts it this way, chapter 17. He says, my spirit is broken. My days are cut short and the grave awaits me. I'm done. My days have passed. My plans are shattered. And so are the desires of my heart. Shattered. I told you guys on the first weekend of this year about a t- t- an epitaph on a gravestone in New England that I heard about back, it was last, the, I think it was the 19th, the 19th uh, or 18th century. The epitaph said, died at age 70, or died at age 45, buried at age 70. Something happened at age 45, and they were done. And this, this, it's caused by any number of things. It's caused by my own sin. The shattering comes as a result of my own sin or other people's sin. Their sinful choices that impact me. Uh, it, it can, the, the, the shattering can come just by my own stupidity or somebody else's stupidity. It's bad, poor decision making and all of a sudden things crash or it, just, it could be just the shrapnel of a fallen world. An earthquake, a disease, a fire.
But a lot of our shattering happens in relational context. Not all of them, but the psalmist puts it this way. Psalm 69, verse 20. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. You want to know what it's like to be right here? Sometime the arts can describe that more powerfully than any other way. A couple of years ago, I was watching uh, the A, I think it's the ACMs, the Academy of Country Music Awards. It was in 2017. Arlene had turned it on. I walked by, sat down. And Miranda Lambert got up, came on stage with just a guitar and a spotlight on her. And she sang a song that I'll never forget. It's called Tin Man. It was about a season of her life and she took the character from The Wizard of Oz and what was the dominant characteristic of the Tin Man? He had no heart. It was a standing ovation, and actually the next year, that song won best song of the year. And the reason is it, we, we go, we, we identify so deeply with that. Maybe it would be better. This, this is so painful. Maybe it'd be better if I didn't even have a heart that could get shattered. So she sang about it. Listen to a little of the song and look at the lyrics. Hey there, Mr. Tin Man. You don't know how lucky you are. I've been on the road that you're on, and it didn't get me very far. You ain't missing nothing. What was the road that he was on? Wanting to have a heart. And she's saying, I've been on that road where I've had a heart. It didn't get me very far. You ain't missing nothing because love is so hard. Take it from me, darling. You don't want a heart. Hey there, Mr. Tin Man. I'm glad we talked this out. You can take mine if you want it. You can take my heart. It's in pieces now. By the way, there, Mr. Tin Man, if you don't mind the scars, 
you give me your armor and you can have my heart. We just like to resign from trying to figure out the dance. So what does resignation look like? In a sense, it looks like escape. Let me give you an equation. What's escape look like? It involves a broken experience. We all have those. You combine that broken experience with a resistant posture. It could be a resistant in terms of an in-your-face anger. It could be resistance saying, I'm not going to deal with it. It could be resistance saying, I'm just going to go over here. If it's a relational shattering, I'm going to go pour myself into work. If it's a work shattering, I'm going to pour myself into a relationship. The bottom line, it's resistant. It's not wanting to deal with it. It's kind of, the, well, you just got to be tough. And what ends up resulting from that is a bitterness that chokes life. It could be a bitterness that spews on others, or it could be a bitterness that just percolates and bubbles and boils deep within us into a cynicism saying it's not worth it I'm not going to engage I'm just going to resign from the dance but there's a second option it's restoration Oh, I can opt for resignation, but the gospel summons me to something different. Summons me to a trajectory of restoration. Go back to the text, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, says Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and He has sent me to bind up, to restore to heal the brokenhearted, the shattered hearts. Advent means arrival, coming. He came very intentionally. This is what He came for. In John chapter 10, verse 10, He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. There, that's a good image of what the thief comes to do right there. He said, but let me tell you what I've come to do. I've come that you might have life and have it perisuo, have it to the full, have it according to what it was originally intended to be. Restoration involves the authenticity of the resignation but the, resign, the authenticity and resignation is only a partial authenticity. The authenticity and resignation is owning up to the, the shattered realities. Restoration involves me being authentic about engaging with the brokenness, but also authentic in engaging with the gospel, engaging with who Jesus is and engaging with what his agenda is. Psalm 147, verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted, he binds up their wounds. He takes those pieces and he says, let me do something with those. And we say, it's too, Jesus, it's done. He says, it's not done. A 
I broke a vase earlier this week, and one of our artists put it back together with some gold glue and paint. It's patterned after an ancient Japanese art called kintsugi. Kent means golden, sugi means mend. And this craft, this art in Japan is something powerful because it takes broken pottery, broken bowls, broken dishes, and mends them, binds up the brokenness, and says, let's make something even more valuable. And a kintsugi bowl is more expensive than one that has never been broken. I'm on the board of a ministry and organization called IAM Culture Care, IAM International Arts Movement Culture Care, with a dear friend, Mako Fujimura. And we're just talking this week. And I am Culture Care, we've got a new video coming out. It's not completed yet. When it is, we'll put it on our website for you. But I want you to take a look at a clip from that film. And it's about Kensugi. Mako headed over to Tokyo to interact with a, a master of someone who takes Japanese lacquer and liquid gold and make something beautiful out of something that's broken. Uh, take a minute, listen to Mako, and meet this Kintsugi master. The world is predicated upon mending what is broken, and this reality of how the Kintsugi bowl is more valuable than the original uh, really speak to the restorative, redemptive process um, of the gospel. Kintsugi is this art form of mending uh, broken shards of pottery. Kin means gold and tsugi means to mend, so you are reconnecting the broken pieces, but doing it in a way that is, that is beautiful and uh, it's an art form of its own. Kintsugi speaks about conditions of trauma and brokenness, ground zero conditions, valuing what you have rather than this disposable culture. Kintsugi is not just fixing, but it's, it's creating into an opportunity um, of brokenness. And so that is a redemptive journey um, that leads to new creation. Kintsugi is not just a fixing, but it's creating Kintsugi 
完璧に仕上げるよりもちょっと未完成な方がさっきまでボロボロだと思った器にこう黄金の皮が流れてるっていうふうに自分がこう感じるようになってくるんですよね。Kintsu he reminds us that sometimes instead of throwing away things of the past,、um, that it's, it's good to work to mend、uh, and to do it beautifully. To me, how the gospel reads is Christ came not just to fix us, but, but to restore us to create something new,、um, which is more valuable than what we began with. So, absolutely. Isaiah 61, verse 3. Read it again. Read it with that in mind and this in mind. I've come to provide for those who grieve in Zion and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oils of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's why Jesus said things like John 16, verse 33. He says, In this world, you will have trouble. You know what that means in the Greek? We've talked about it many times. It means in this world, you will have trouble. There's nobody that's immune to this. But he says, In the midst of this, you can take heart. Let me tell you why. I've overcome the world, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. So, how do I engage in this way? Well, remember, escape, if we looked at that equation,、uh, trying to escape that whole resignation path. Escape looks at a broken experience, and I have a resistant posture that leads to a bitterness that chokes life. But in engaging this, in this process of restoration, the restoration of Jesus, same broken experience, but instead of a resistant posture, I have a pliable posture. I have a heart that's soft. A heart that comes to him and, and says, Would you mend me? Would you restore me? And in that pliable posture, it's met with the result is a brokenness. Is this broken? Yes, but it's whole also. It's a beautiful brokenness that leads to life. This, the whole posture of Resignation involves bitterness. This involves beautiful brokenness. This involves wounds. And wounds are always seeping the seepage, the, 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 the toxicity. Restoration involves scars. I cannot do a thing, you can't do a thing about the broken experiences that are there. But what we do have a choice in is whether we will let those broken experiences be a place of woundedness or a place of scar tissue. Now, scar tissue can be beautiful when it looks like this. Psalm 51, verse 8, the psalmist in the New English version of the Bible says, Let the bones dance. Which you've broken. I have been broken and I was sidelined. I had to go through some grieving, but it's time to get back on the dance floor. And I can get back on the dance floor and dance better than I could dance before. 
because I'm dancing to the music of the restorative gospel of Jesus. This past week, I read a a Facebook post of a friend. I was shocked because she mentioned seven years. I didn't realize it had been, it seems like yesterday, when her son, 19 years old, out in Colorado, died of a climbing accident. And she was reflecting on it earlier this week, and she said this, She wrote, today I had a moment, another moment when joy and pain coexisted. That's what happens in this beauty of brokenness. We don't deny the pain, we're authentic about that, but we're also authentic about the mending. She said, my mama's mind was pondering how good my two kiddos living on this earth are doing. And she mentions both of their names and talks about them a little bit. And then she says, it's a, a son and a daughter who are still living, had three kids, and here she, then she says, then I glanced over at their brother's picture and began to, wonder, began to wonder what it would be like if he were still here, witnessing his sibling's growth. Would it be different if he had never died seven years ago? I'm pretty sure it would have. None of us are the same. Our lives are deeper and richer because of our experience. A kintsugi bowl is more precious, more valuable, more beautiful than it was ever before. And the value comes in the restoration. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that there's there's surpassing power is from God, not from ourselves. We can't do this to ourselves. As a result, oh yes, we're hard pressed on every side. but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. I don't understand all of these pieces. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, no doubt, but we are not destroyed. And we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. That's what it looks like to be fully alive. That's what it looks like to celebrate Christmas not in a superficial eggnog and tinsel way, but in a deep abiding way that in the midst of the shards of a fallen world, you and I have been met with the hope of the gospel, the restoration of the gospel, the healing of the gospel, and the ability to dance again even if it's with broken bones.